0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and do not represent those of the Murder Chronicles and Pie in the Sky Media. All individuals described or mentioned in the show should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to Episode 27, Part 2 of The Eye of the Storm. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please go back and listen to episode 26, part one of The Eye of the Storm. Today's episode, part two, is a continuation of Melinda Elkins Dawson's story.
1: Well, on June 12, 1998, my mom was buried, and I made a vow to her that I was going to find out who did this. I mean, I, from hell or high water, I'm going to find out who did this. And You know, that went into also getting Clarence out of prison. I mean, he didn't deserve to be in prison.
0: Last week, Melinda shared her belief that her resiliency and the ability to overcome heartbreak and hardship was forged at a very young age.
1: And I always say that those years of having to go through these uh, different tragedies and crises, and it really, it led me to be the person that I am today. And I think it also prepared me for what was coming.
0: Unbeknownst to Melinda, when she woke up that Sunday morning on June 7th, 1998, her life would forever change. She had no idea that a SWAT team had been quietly gathering around her rural property until a signal had been made to swarm, and without warning, officers spilled onto her property, and that's when she was told that an eyewitness, her little niece, six-year-old Brooke, had been brutally assaulted and left for dead at her grandmother's house, who'd been murdered, and that Melinda's husband, Clarence, had been identified as the killer. In the following days, Melinda would hear about Brooke's heart wrenching voicemail after finding her grandmother, Melinda's mom, lying on the floor in a pool of blood.
1: Instead of calling 911, she called a friend of my mom's and she said, I'm sorry to tell you, which just breaks your heart, that my grandma's dead and someone killed her. Someone.
0: Remember, in this voicemail, there was no mention of her uncle Clarence killing her grandmother. It was somebody killed my grandma. And when asked by law enforcement who'd attacked her and her grandmother, Brooke said later it looked like her uncle Clarence. But it had been dark, and Brooke had been severely traumatized and brutally assaulted. But by the time that Clarence went on trial a year later, when Brooke was put on the stand, she was unwavering when she looked at her uncle Clarence and said that he did it. There was no physical evidence connecting Clarence Elkins to the crime, and the limited DNA testing that had been done were on the hairs found on Judy's body, and they didn't come from Clarence Elkins. Melinda says if they would have done DNA testing after Clarence had been arrested and charged and compared it to the samples left behind by the killer, the results would have eliminated Clarence. But that didn't happen. Could they have tested that fecal matter with the hair on the pajamas? of your, the nightgown that Brooke was wearing back when this happened in 1998, right? Could they have tested it back then for DNA and would, would the technology been advanced enough to rule out Clarence from the get-go? Yes. Why
1: was that never done? Because they had their man. The eyewitness
0: testimony of a six-year-old little girl with head trauma was enough for the jury to come back with a guilty verdict, and Clarence Elkins was sent to prison for the rest of his life on June 18, 1999. In another blow, in September of 2000, Clarence Elkins' appeal was rejected, and the Ohio Supreme Court refused to consider the case. Clarence was at a dead end, as far as his legal options were concerned, but he had Melinda and she was determined to get fresh evidence to get a new trial. Melinda was devastated because she knew in her heart of hearts that Clarence didn't do it, and that became her focus as she was left to pick up the pieces of her life. She had two boys to raise. Even so, she made a vow to find her mother's killer and to get her husband out of prison.
1: I mean, I, come hell or high water, I'm going to find out who did this. And, you know, that went into also getting Clarence out of prison. I mean, he didn't deserve to be in prison.
0: One thing that Melinda had on her side was just enough knowledge about DNA back then to know just how important it would be in solving the case, getting the real killer and true justice for her mother, Brooke and Clarence. In episode one, I had mentioned that Melinda had been adopted and that years later, she'd found out that she was a so-called Hicks baby, one of more than 200 illegal adoptions through a Dr. Thomas Hicks, who operated a small clinic in McKaysville, Georgia. Judy and her husband, Homer, Melinda's adoptive parents, had been told that their baby's birth parents had made the choice to put their daughter up for adoption because they wanted to avoid a scandal. Apparently, Melinda's birth mother and father were having an affair. Both were married to other people, and Melinda's father was a prominent figure in town. According to Melinda's research, Decades later, that was actually true, but some of the so-called Hicks babies were actually newborns that were taken from mothers who had been told that their baby had died, and some of the adoptive parents that purchased the babies were told that the mother had died. Dr. Hicks would create fake birth certificates for adoptive parents who were listed as the real birth parents, but there was never any record of the true birth mother and father within the local court system. Melinda and her adoptive mother, Judy, wouldn't find out until decades later when melinda went to the county courthouse in mckaysville georgia to get a copy of her birth certificate and that's when she was pulled into a little room and told that she was one of at least 200 babies that were illegally sold to couples in six states from 1951 to 1964. this revelation would lead melinda to connect with other hicks babies who were trying to find their birth parents Many of them uploaded their DNA to private companies who have large DNA databases like Ancestry DNA and 23andMe to identify potential relatives as a way to get closer to finding their birth parents through familial DNA. Again, Melinda credits this experience in trying to find her birth parents, which she did, with wanting to find justice for Judy and Clarence because she knew the power of DNA as a tool in solving crimes.
1: I don't know, other than my faith in God, how I was able to pull this off. I don't know. But it was God involved. So that I do know. But literally, he used me as as the conduit, I guess, to get these things done. Because I only had a, a small percentage of, of DNA knowledge. And that comes from when some of the babies that were born out of this clinic got together, and we decided we were going to do DNA evidence um, back in 1997 to try to find our birth parents. And then, you know, once Clarence was arrested, I knew that DNA was going to set him free. And so I really uh, had faith that the prosecutors were going to do this DNA testing. They were going to see that Clarence didn't do it, and it would you know, just be over. We would find out who did it.
0: Melinda says at the time of the investigation into Clarence for the rape and murder of her mother and the brutal assault of Brooke, they never did any DNA testing on the DNA samples that the killer had left behind at the scene of the crime. Melinda knew that unknown male DNA had been collected from underneath Judy's nails and in Brooke's underwear and nightgown. Melinda was convinced that the person who murdered her mom and brutalized her niece was someone in the vicinity of her mom's circle. She made a Venn diagram of sorts. Men who had documented violent crimes in the past in Barberton, that's the city where her mother was living when she was murdered, and she also looked at anyone who could have been a threat to Judy in the past
1: you know, you have to put your mind in a place that you've never been before. And that is, I got to track people down. Like first, I, I have to find people who fit that kind of criteria, you know, and so a lot of those people that were initially on my list were people that were from around that area, knew my mom through my sister and her husband, and so I would look up if they had any arrests for violence in sexual nature, anything like that, and then if they did, they became a suspect of mine.
0: Over time, Melinda was able to put together a list of 12 names with the help of a private investigator that the family had hired. But remember, she didn't have the luxury of going to a detective and sharing her thoughts with the Barberton Police Department, who believed that they had their man, Case Closed. Looking back now, she sees that she put herself in dangerous situations. But she was fueled by the knowledge that the husband of her two children was in prison for something that he didn't do. And it killed her inside when she would watch her two kids go and visit Clarence in jail. And she just, it was more than she could bear. And so she did it. She went to find these men. And she didn't just go and find them. She had to get close to them.
1: I'd find them in a bar. And, you know, I'd either get a cigarette butt or I would take their, um beer bottle that they were drinking from their beer bottle or their beer glass and, you know, put it away and kind of excuse myself out of the situation and leave in a hurry, you know, oh, Lord.
0: Didn't you say that you yanked one of the hairs out of one of
1: their heads? Yeah. Yeah. I pretended um, one of my suspects were uh, right in front of me and I had to uh, play up to them like, you know, he's being flirty, which... You know, I've I've always had that.
0: It wasn't a stretch. (laughs) Yeah,
1: right. (laughs) And I just kind of, you know, was running my hands through, you know, the back of their hair until I actually felt a hair and just kind of held it there and talked and, you know, smoked a cigarette, drank, drank some of my beer, which I don't even drink. So I would be real careful, you know, I couldn't drink a whole beer. So I'd go to the bathroom and I, I always had a baggie and a little paper bag, like a sandwich bag or a sandwich paper bag, you know, the lunch bags. And I would use the baggie to take the hair out of my hand and then put it in the ground paper bag. Uh, and then I would seal it up and put it in my purse. And then I'd sit back down for maybe two or three minutes and then uh, get out of Dodge. That's what I did.
0: That is so incredible. How many of these samples did you take?
1: Uh, there was 12 people on my suspect list. So I, I did this 12 times. We'll
0: be back after a quick break. So Melinda was putting together her list of suspects and going about collecting their DNA surreptitiously when, in an astonishing turn of events in 2002, when Brooke was now 10 years old, she recants her testimony. Not only did she say that her uncle Clarence wasn't the perpetrator, but that she had felt pressured to say that it was.
1: Who'd you say it was? My Uncle Clarence. Okay. Why did you say it was Uncle Clarence? Because it looked like him. But do you think so today? No. Okay.
0: Clarence Elkins' lawyers petitioned to get a new trial based on Brooke's recantation. And by this time, Clarence's DNA had been tested and compared to the unknown male DNA sample at the crime scene. And it wasn't a match.
1: Yes, it opened up uh, with evidentiary hearing because of Brooke Reek. Brooke's recantation and our alternative suspect. So they said that Brooke's recantation had been coerced by me because I had custody of her at that time. I had custody of Brooke and her brother Noah while Clarence was still in prison. I won't go into all that, but I, I had them for four years and, you know, nobody, nobody ever blamed Brooke Ever. And, uh, you know, we, I never talked to her about the case ever. If she ever wanted to talk about it, she talked to my friend Lori and I, I told her I couldn't talk to her about the case. So she would talk to my friend Lori and she told Lori and Martin Yant, who was our private investigator, that it wasn't Clarence.
0: Despite Brooke recanting her testimony and the fact that Clarence Elkin's DNA didn't match the unknown profile at the scene, the judge denied him a new trial. Melinda started working with the Ohio Innocence Project, who looked into the case and discovered a lot of the forensic evidence that had been collected at the crime scene hadn't even been processed for DNA comparison. And then there was Melinda's samples. She'd just been collecting them from the men and putting them in her freezer, but she didn't have any money to test them. But in 2003, Melinda says she raised money to test the DNA of one Barberton man that she believed at the time could be the killer based on her suspect list. This man's DNA ultimately would not match the killer's DNA that had been left behind at the scene. With the help of the Ohio Innocence Project, DNA tests were performed for the first time on traces of biological material that had been found on Judith Johnson's body and Brooke's underwear. These tests revealed the same male DNA profile in all three locations, which was evidence that the same man had attacked both Judy and Brooke, and that man, again, was not Clarence Elkins. According to a timeline in the law.umish.edu, Clarence Elkins asked again for a new trial based on the DNA evidence that another man committed the crime, and he is denied a new trial again. The prosecutors continued to insist that Clarence Elkins was guilty, despite this new DNA evidence and Brooks' recantation. The judge explained that Clarence had been convicted based on Brooks' identification, not on DNA evidence, and that if this new scientific evidence had been presented to the jury, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. But another break came in the case when Melinda was reading a newspaper. She had made it a habit to read the crime section, looking for headlines of violent crimes that matched her mother's and Brooks' attack. She was gobsmacked when she saw an article about a man named Earl Mann who had been sentenced to seven years for child rape.
1: Now, mind you, Earl Mann went to prison for seven years. That's how I found out about Earl Mann. He went to prison for seven years for raping his own children.
0: And as she read the article, she recognized a name, Tanya Brazel, who in the article had been mentioned as Earl Mann's common law wife. She was the woman who had answered the door when Brooke had run over begging for help.
1: Tanya left her on the steps outside for 45 minutes. Brooke was disheveled, bloody, hurt, obviously, and... Then she decides to take her to my sister's house, which was like three minutes away drive time. And she tells my sister that she's saying it was her uncle Clarence. That's where it started. yeah, and I always found a red flag there. I said something is wrong there. Why wouldn't this woman call the police, call an ambulance, go check on my mom? You know, if she was so scared that that she wanted to get Brooke out of out of her 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 yard? Why didn't she call the police? Why did the police not follow up on this? You know, (laughs) because they had someone saying, an eyewitness saying who it was. Shortly after Tanya had brought Brooke over to April's house, she left town.
0: After reading that article, Melinda knew that she had to get Earl Mann's DNA. She did a search and she discovered that Earl Mann was in the same sex offender prison as Clarence. But it was even better than that. He was on the same block, which meant he'd have access to his DNA if he could collect it. He was in there. That was the reason that he was in there. What was he charged with? Child rape. That was his conviction.
1: Yep. Of his own children. Seven years they gave him. Wow. And that is the first article that I read. And I never knew who Earl Man was. I didn't even know he existed. But then... um when it came on that that uh, Tanya Brazel had named him as a common law husband and I, and I saw that, I'm like, oh my God, it's him. He did this and everybody poo-pooed it. And I said, I'm telling you, it's him. And that's when I convinced Clarence to get the cigarette butt or something from him. And then uh, we agreed on a cigarette butt.
0: At the same time, Melinda was doing her part to get a surreptitious DNA sample from Earl Mann. She pretended to be a pen pal, a lonely woman who was into prisoners. Under a fake name, she sent him scented stationery and asked him to write back. She even ended some of these letters with a lipstick kiss on the paper. She hoped he would write back, because if he did, then she would have his DNA when he licked the envelope. But Earl Mann didn't respond, so it would be up to Clarence to get a sample. In the summer of 2005, Clarence got his chance. Earl Mann put his cigarette out into an ashtray in the yard. Clarence had another prisoner watch the ashtray as he went to find a tissue because he didn't want to contaminate the sample. With this tissue, he pinched the butt between his fingers and brought it back to his cell. But nothing would be easy in this case. Clarence would have to spend the next two weeks trying to get a plastic bag through the prison black market so he could send the cigarette to his attorney which he eventually did.
1: Mark Godsey is the director of the Innocence Project. And I said, I want that cigarette, but tested now. So he called uh, the technician at um, Orchid Salmar, and she started the test right then and had a partial profile that night and was so excited that she called the other guy in, her uh, supervisor. And so they watched that test all night. And then in the morning, it was like 99.99999% Earl Mann.
0: In September of 2005, Clarence Elkins' lawyers announced the DNA from the crime scene matched Earl Mann, who had lived two doors down from Judy Johnson.
1: So then uh, the prosecutors were like, we don't know where you got this DNA. You know, we don't believe you, la la.
0: The district attorney's office made their own comparison it was crystal clear it was Earl Mann's DNA and that it matched the unknown profile collected at the crime scene. But the DA still wouldn't move on this new evidence. Melinda says that Mark Godsey from the Ohio Innocence Project took this new information to the Attorney General of Ohio. They needed their help in putting pressure on the prosecution to not only free Clarence, but to dismiss him of all charges. By the end of October, the attorney general, Jim Petro, held a press conference and publicly called for Clarence Elkins to be set free and exonerated of all charges.
1: And Jim Petro, the attorney general, came out publicly and said that he wanted Clarence released based on this DNA discovery, that he was not guilty. Well, in the press, the prosecutors, I was more of a target than Clarence was. This is all driven by me. I you know, was making all this up. And in the meantime, their office, Sherry Bevan Walsh, who was the prosecutor uh, then, but not was not the prosecutor when Clarence was convicted, she said when she heard the name Earl Mann, she believed it.
0: More murder chronicles after the break. Melinda still has a hard time describing how she felt when she got the news that her husband at long last would be set free
1: Carolyn, it was it was so surreal it wasn't even real it wasn't real and so we did our press conference um and announced it and i mean i I literally just i went back into that same uh i was standing up but i was i i went into like a um what do you call it the um the fetal position. And I was so happy. I was laughing and I was crying and I, I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't, I I just couldn't believe it. I'm still flabbergasted. So then. There um, there
0: has to be, I have to just jump in really quick. It's making me tear up because part of me makes, it feels like there's so much at stake here for you, not just with Clarence, but with not being believed and then them acting like you were just the raging bitch from hell and like causing problems all these years and all that you know the tropes that go through with when women stand up and try to take names and and hold people accountable and get justice am i just projecting here is that all going through
1: oh yeah it all went through and then um they wanted me to tell clarence on the phone what what had happened so he didn't even know but he knew something was up because they had him in um ever since he got the cigarette butt from earl Mann and it was announced they put him in solitaire. So I sit down in this chair and they me the phone and um, Clarence calls in and I said, hey, how you doing? He's like, oh, pretty good. He's like, what'd you find out? Because every time we had been shot down, every time something good happened, we were shot down. And I, I truly believe he was bracing for that you know, he wasn't going to get too excited. But I said, well, I said, have you got your stuff packed? He's like, what? I said, pack your stuff, honey, because you're coming home today. He's like, does this mean I'm coming home for good? What what does this mean? And I said, they've dropped all charges. You are free. You have been exonerated. And he was like, oh, my God, are you serious? And he's, you know, he's he was in shock, too. And everybody around us was Jim Petro and his assistant. And I mean, we were just all giddy with this information. It was just unreal.
0: On December 15th, 2005, Clarence Elkins, at long last, walked out of prison, not only a free man, but he was exonerated of all charges after nearly seven and a half years.
1: So we finally get to the prison. And there is like a wall of reporters cameras flashes everywhere just like you see in the movies it was just unreal and so brooke and noah were there and um brooke always felt ashamed and she always thought that clarence would blame her and and nobody ever nobody ever blamed her but she was there and so we walk inside the lobby one of the woman guards uh, said, you know, I, I just gotta say, you're absolutely beautiful to start with, but everything that you've done for him is, it's never been done, and she congratulated me, and we see Clarence walking down, he's walking outside, and, uh, he walks through the turns stables, and then he's, I mean, he's there. We were all just crying and weeping and laughing. And I wanted his parents to be the first to hug him when he came out. And then he hugged me. And then his boys, you know, and all, all four of us were hugging. And then Brooke, uh, she was crying. And he, you know, he bent down to where she was and hugged her and told her he loved her. And, um, oh God, I mean, I got to tell you, the times that we'd go in and visit him and he couldn't come home with us was, I can't even find words for it. It it was horrific. It was tragic. And it it left its mark, you know, and Earl Mann, I got to put this in here. The day that Clarence got Earl Mann's cigarette butt, the very next day he was moved out of that prison because he had, Uh, attacked another inmate with a sock that had a lock inside of it and he attacked another prisoner. So they moved him to another prison. If Clarence hadn't got that cigarette butt, oh my God.
0: The realization that Earl Mann was actually moved to another prison the very next day after Clarence had collected his snuffed out cigarette butt wouldn't be the only revelation in this case. A much darker fact would soon come to light. If you'll recall, Melinda said that not only was the DNA not tested at the crime scene... Could they have tested it back then for DNA? And would, would the technology been advanced enough to rule out Clarence from the get-go? Yes. Why was that never done? Because they had their man. Not long after Clarence's release and exoneration, another bombshell would come to their attention. A critical memo on the case had been buried. On January 5, 1999, before Clarence Elkins' trial, Earl Mann had been arrested by Barberton police for two robberies. During the course of the arrest, Earl Mann, who was drunk, would say to the patrol officer, quote, Why don't you charge me with the Judy Johnson murder? The patrol officer sent an interdepartmental memo with Mann's statement to the department that was investigating Judy's murder, but that memo was never disclosed to Clarence Elkins or the prosecution. Moreover, when police had arrested Earl Mann, he listed his address as being next to Judy Johnson. Why wouldn't police follow up on this?
1: Um, In 1999, January of 1999, this was six months before Clarence went on trial, a patrolman had pulled over Earl Mann. Earl Mann was drinking, was, you know, out of his mind kind of, and told the patrolman, aren't you arresting me for Judy Johnson's murder? And that patrolman sent a memo over to the detective's office, and they never disclosed that to, well, first of all, they should have followed up on that, but they never disclosed that memo to the defense. Clarence should have never went on trial. They had a partial confession from Earl Mann, and they hid it.
0: And this patrolman was in the same jurisdiction as where this trial was taking place. So you can't say that it's a different jurisdiction. We didn't know. You know, we didn't right. get the information. We didn't get the memo when they did get the memo.
1: Exactly. And that's how we were able to go ahead with our um, civil suit against Barberton Police Department was because they never turned over that that memo. But we come to find that out, find that out after Clarence was released.
0: This new information was a big part of Clarence's lawsuit.
1: Please tell me you guys got to pay out. Yes. Um, when he was released, uh, Jim Petro gave him the certificate of um, uh, innocence right away. I mean, because sometimes guys have to fight for that. They don't always when they're released uh, and exonerated, sometimes they don't get paid. So that, you know, Clarence distributed between uh, me and the boys and himself and then, you um, We filed a civil suit against the Barberton Police Department when we found out that they had this memo and never, you know, did anything about it. And um, that was a, a, a good payout.
0: With Clarence's release and exoneration, finally, Earl Mann was in the frame for the crimes against Judy and Brooke. After failing five lie detector tests and knowing that they had his DNA at the crime scene, Earl Mann would eventually admit his guilt. On August 8, 2008, Earl Mann in court admitted to the murder and rape of Judy Johnson and the attempted murder and rape of Brooke. He is sentenced to 55 years to life. The National Registry of Exonerations has recorded more than 3,200 exonerations since 1989. African Americans make up 47% of these exonerations, even though they are only 13% of the population. Innocent Black people are about seven times more likely to be convicted of murder than innocent white people. I mean, this is, this is, like I said, uh, you know, the worst nightmare when you think about in terms of like, Prosecuted for something you didn't do, you know. I mean, it's right up there with a lot of bad things that can happen, and so I, I just
1: yeah, and and the, the thing about this is Clarence spent seven and a half years, which is a long ass time to be innocent, okay. But you look at other cases where people have been in 20, 30, 40 years, and then the Innocence Projects come out, right? But the Innocence Project really only takes cases if there's DNA. So then you have this this subculture of people that have been wrongfully convicted. They've been in prison for 30 years. Uh, There's no DNA available. Who's going to help them?
0: It's not uncommon in great times of struggle, the loss of a child, or other catastrophic events that have crippling effects on a marriage. And unfortunately, Melinda and Clarence's marriage would not survive the stress of what they all had endured. But I'm happy to share that Melinda's relationship with her sister April, Brooke's mom, was able to withstand the trauma of these horrific crimes.
1: What is your relationship now with April? (laughs) We live right beside each other. We have a wonderful relationship. Yay! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my
0: gosh, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Okay. And Brooke, do you still have, do you have a good relationship with her? Yes. Yes. Before I let you go, I wanted to thank you for listening to the Murder Chronicles and also remind you to check out the bonus episodes where my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss each case in more detail. The Murder Chronicles is a Pie in the Sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.